0: This episode is all about what happens when human encroachment causes us to lose our planet's greatest treasures, our animal friends, our natural resources, and our environment. For this season of thanks, Relic is asking for your donation to one of three charities. And I did research on these, so trust me when I say they're legit. The first charity is the Hispanic Federation Unidos, which is for hurricane relief in Puerto Rico. Visit hispanicfederation.org slash donate. The second is the Rainforest Alliance, a foundation for preserving the world's many forest ecosystems. That website is rainforest-alliance.org. And lastly, the National Resources Defense Council fights environmental degradation with the power of the law. You can donate to them at nrdc.org. Links to all three charities can be found in the description of this episode. Thanks. The Congo, 1901 For hundreds of years, Europeans had heard tales from North Africa concerning a mysterious creature referred to as the African Unicorn. There were even carvings from Egyptian temples that confirmed that some creature that no longer roamed Eurasia and Africa once thrived in those places. But as the 20th century approached, zoologists and biologists began efforts to separate mythology from fact, Most dismiss these legends and depictions as a misidentification of the rhinoceros or some other known animal. Others assume that these so-called unicorns were a long gone species, extinct in other words. Even so, questions remained. The people of the Congo often spoke of a creature they referred to as the Ati, which they said lived among the bush and resembled a diminutive zebra. In 1890, the wilderness explorer Henry Morton Stanley discovered first-hand accounts of this unusual equine creature. Almost 11 years later, the British High Commissioner of Uganda, Sir Harry Johnston, stumbled unintentionally into the rumors of the African unicorn. Now, as this was the age of colonialism, we should probably be skeptical about the following accounts. According to Johnston, While out on an expedition into the Congo, the commissioner stumbled upon one of his fellow Brits trying to capture a group of Congolese pygmies, who you may remember from last episode, in order to sell them off to a human zoo back in Europe. Johnson interceded on their behalf. In gratitude, the natives provided him with unusual striped pelts. As Johnson had never seen a hide like this before, he immediately sent the pelts back to England for the British Museum to analyze. The scientific minds at the Institute speculated that an as-of-yet-undiscovered species of zebra was hiding in the forests. But, until somebody acquired an actual live specimen, or even a body, the burden of proof was now on Johnson. The commissioner once again turned to the pygmy tribesmen for help, and they journeyed into the dense Ituri forest. Their search was fruitful, almost from the start, as they discovered cloven tracks which eventually led them to the body of what would later be dubbed the Okapi, and much to Johnson's surprise, he discovered that the unicorn or horse-like creature of legend was actually a smaller relative of the giraffe of all things. Though its numbers were few, a small group of Okapi had managed to survive extinction by withdrawing into the forests of Central Africa. The most important takeaway of this discovery, or rather, rediscovery of the Okapi, is that something once thought long dead, to the point that history had transformed it into a legend, was found again, far from where modern civilization could interfere. For the Western scientific world, this was a victory. But for the Congolese, there was never any doubt that the Ati, or Okapi, was anything other than a part of the natural order of things, which posed an interesting question. Can something that has never really gone away truly be considered lost? It belongs in a museum! Um... And uh, yeah, this is Relic, the Lost Treasure podcast. Specifically, this episode is one of our It Belongs in a Museum series where I invite other podcasts to come along for the adventure and discuss lost artifacts that fall in line with their area of concentration. So we're in the midst of a mid-season chill from our standard narrative format. So new listeners might uh, want to actually go back two to three episodes if they want to experience Relic at its natural wild state and speaking of natural and wild i am here with one of relic's earliest podcaster friends who does something on the subject of natural and wild and that person is kate shaw of strange animals podcast kate do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your show
1: yeah thanks for having me this is really awesome i'm excited um i do strange animals podcast it's available pretty much everywhere uh if you don't want to Try downloading it. You can always go to strangeanimalspodcast dot com and just listen on your browser. But it'd be awesome if you could subscribe. Uh, yes. We're also on, yeah, we're also on Twitter all the time. And when yep. I say we, I always mean me, because no. I'm the only one who does this, and I'm always saying we. It's me
0: too. Me too. <laughs> I, it's like, though this. I'm not trying to do, like, the royal we. It's just, like, <laughs> I don't, I think it's just such, like, a, a media thing, just yeah. to kind of, but, like, there are other people who are involved in the process um, somewhat, so, it, you know, it isn't really just me. Like, I've, someone made a, was someone composed um, the theme song Um, people pitch in all the time so i guess it's kind of a collaborative effort it's part of that whole like podcast we're all a community kind of delicious socialist thing
1: (laughs) podcasters are always on each other's podcasts all the time anyway so it's true we as in all podcasters that's the royal we
0: yes (laughs) um we are the collective we're the borg um i know (laughs) um so anyways uh on the subject of animals, we're going to be discussing animals that may or may not exist. Um, I kind of want to let people know that while this podcast is most definitely an Unsolved Mysteries podcast, we do like to keep the focus on realistic um, tales that contain maybe like seasonings of the supernatural and a dash of the paranormal, but uh, we generally don't like go full throttle into that. Um so uh, this is not necessarily going to be a straight up cryptids episode, but low key, this is totally going to be our cryptids episode. So um, if I can reel it in, Kate and I are going to be examining animals that have inconclusive proof as to their no, I'm sorry. We have conclusive proof as to their previous existence. Um So sadly, we're not going to include things like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster friends because we don't know if they actually exist. These are animals that did exist at one time. We have specimens of them. Unfortunately, they are um, marked as extinct. Um, But that said, these animals that we're looking at also have a very unusual habit of popping up every now and then in the wild. Uh, Are they really gone after all? One might wonder. So, Kate, do you want to start us on our first uh, animal friend?
1: Oh, yes. I have a really good one, too.
0: Okay, lay it on us.
1: All right. So, this is... My first one is the Borneo pygmy elephant. And it's not actually a pygmy. It's not that much smaller than a regular Asian elephant. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit smaller. So, <laughs> Borneo is part of the Malay Archipelago, Which I have very carefully written down so that I won't mispronounce it every single time like I always do. (laughs) Archipelago. Not archipelago. Not not archipelago. (laughs) So many ways to screw up. But anyway, so Borneo. Borneo. Borneo is part of the Malay Archipelago in southeastern Asia. Mm -hmm. It's the largest island in Asia, and it's the third largest in the world. So it's Mm. actually bigger than Texas. So this is not just a little bitty island. This is an island that has elephants. So we know the elephants are there. Um, And the, the problem is that for a long time nobody really paid attention to these elephants but Uh it's very interesting what we think they are now so let me back up a little bit and talk about some elephants from other islands that are definitely extinct and might be the same ones that are in borneo so there used to be a type of asian elephant subspecies called the java elephant and it went extinct in about the 18th century. Uh, somewhere around in there. But before that happened, um, it was one of the elephants that the sultans in the area liked to, to give out to other kings and so forth as gifts. Because, like, hey, who do Like doesn't Oprah? Want a bunch of elephants, yeah. <laughs> Lots of elephants. You, so, huh? <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> you get an elephant, and you get an elephant, and everybody gets <laughs> an elephant.
1: Yeah, yeah it, only. You know, it's even better than, like, a car or something because you can get new elephants from the elephants that you have. So True. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. So anyway, what happened was this. And I have notes here. It's not going to help me because I can never remember anything. <laughs> so in <laughs> you're going to have to edit a lot of silence.
0: No, <laughs> we're doing a live, I'm alive, so Kate. sorry. Okay, we're doing it live. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The pressure.
1: Okay. I'll just keep talking. Okay. So, the locals in Borneo say that around 1750, a pair of elephants were given to the Sultan of Sulu, who brought them to Borneo. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. So, later on, at some point, the elephants were released into the wild, and their descendants populated the island, and that's also pretty straightforward, and the elephants are there, so we know something like that happened. And there's a bunch of variations on this story. In 1880 or 1899, a guy named Shelford, and I forgot to look up who he was, but apparently he knows what he's talking about because he was in the olden days and they all know. So, but he wrote that the wild elephants were probably descendants of a pair given to the local ruler by the Sultan of Pahang. And I don't know where that is, but it sounds really cool. Um, But Hmm. they were turned loose after a few years in captivity. And the elephants that are there now, they really are very inbred. So we know that they probably were the descendants of just a pair or just a few. So so none of this stuff is, is disputed. Um, okay. And in, fif- in 1521, um, this guy Pigafetta, who shows up all the time when I'm doing research, um, he was one of the few guys who lived through Magellan's voyage around the world. And he wrote a book afterwards. So I'm always coming across him, and he's always talking about the animals that he saw in different places. Well, one of the things that he reported was that in 1521, uh, they landed on what's now Borneo Island, and he saw not just elephants there, but they were captive elephants, and they were caparisoned in silk, and they brought all the people up to the palace. So... I don't know if he's making that up because he was a little bit loose with the, the facts. but With the truth? It,
0: uh, <laughs> loose with the truth? Yeah.
1: Sometimes he kind of made stuff up. But by the 1770s, other people, and by people in this case, I mean Europeans, because they wrote in English or other languages that we know. So that's mostly how we get the information. Mm-hmm. Um, the people on the island, I mean, people have talked to them. And they say, yeah, of course, these elephants came from this Sultan. But they didn't write it down, so it doesn't count, right? So, but anyway, so by the 1770s, there were no palace elephants. But there were lots of elephants on the island. Well, the Sultan of Sulu used to give those elephants as royal gifts, and the ones that were on Borneo were pretty sure that the Sultan of Sulu gave them to him. The Sultan of Sulu, Sulu, is not just a guy in Star Trek, but I was he's say. also yeah. I know every single time I look it up, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, no, Ooh Sulu. My. Elephants is an island, and with a sultan, and so Sulu is another island in the archipelago. Ar- archipelago. Oh my god, I wrote it down wrong. You wrote, <laughs> wrote archipelago two different ways. It's okay. Anyway, it's another island. <laughs> it's another island that's not too far away, but it is too far away for say the islands or the elephants just swim to another island. So these elephants were given away to other rajahs and, oh, people who were important on various islands. Well, those elephants were pretty sure that those were given to the Sultan of Sulu by the Sultan in Java. And Java, Mm. of course, is the place where the extinct, now extinct elephants were originally from. So all these gifts that were given, well, apparently, you know, they kind of got tired of taking care of the elephants at some point, And they just turned them loose. And the elephants were like, okay, sure, whatever. And they just <laughs> made more elephants. And now there are lots of elephants. Um, but only on Borneo. Because all the other elephants either died out or they were just killed off. Because elephants kind of like to eat the same things that people do. And they sort of make a mess. And people don't like that, so they just shoot the elephants. So, But we have the Borneo elephants, and there have been a bunch of people who say, well, yeah, there's lots of elephants around in that area. Obviously, those elephants have been there forever. They're not Java elephants, but there are no fossil elephants on Borneo. Um, The only fossil skull, there's a fossil skull that was supposedly found in a cave in Borneo, but it was found in an area where there aren't actually any caves. So that's probably not where it was actually found. It was dated to 35,000 years ago, um, but we're pretty sure that it was imported and sold to somebody who donated it to the local museum and he didn't know, somebody just ripped him off. So there are no fossil elephants in Borneo. So the Borneo elephants clearly did not live in Borneo forever. They were imported from somewhere else. So the DNA testing in 2003 was very interesting because it showed that the Borneo elephants, obviously they're Asian elephants, but they're a subspecies that has diverged from the other Asian elephant subspecies about 300,000 years ago. So this is a very different subspecies of Asian elephant. And as far as we know, um, and I'm pretty sure it's the case, this is actually the Java elephant, which it was supposed to have been extinct, and I don't think it's extinct anymore. So, I what? think that's really cool.
0: <laughs> so, where does the Java? So, it like it's still so it's like part of this species that's still there, or like
1: yeah. Well, the Java elephants. Every time you have a species, um, the species that live in different parts, like the. Asian elephant, parts of the world. So the Asian elephant, there's lots of different Asian elephant populations. And the longer that a population is separated from a different population of the same animal, the more likely they are to change a little bit and evolve a little bit in this direction because of the different pressures of selection. Yeah, so that's where the subspecies come from because they're not different enough at this point to, for us to say, oh, yeah, that's a totally different species of elephant because they can still interbreed. I mean, if you took a Java elephant to Asia or uh, a different part of Asia, <laughs> I can't think of anywhere in Asia. Say you took them to India and, and okay. you introduced the one elephant to another and they did what they're supposed to and they made a new elephant, then, yeah, that that would be considered an Asian elephant, um, but okay. a different subspecies uh, for oh, both parents. Okay. Yeah. So so it's not exciting to a lot of people because they look at it and say, well, that's still just the same elephant. But it's actually not. It's so cool because it's different on the molecular level and the genetic level. Oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, it's basically we, ha- so,
0: we have this whole new yeah, species that's basically and- hiding in plain sight.
1: Exactly. And nobody realized this for the longest time. And there are some physical differences. Um, Like I said, they're a little bit smaller than regular Asian elephants. The males have really straight tusks, um, unlike most elephants where the tusk curve. And um, their tails are super long. These tails, I mean, literally the bottoms of a lot of the tails are brushing the ground. It's really cool. I look at pictures of them, and they're so cute. But... (laughs) I just like elephants. <laughs> yeah, so, elephants so are the that's, best. they are they're so awesome. So that's my first one which was hopefully made some sort of sense because I get really excited and then I forget all the details that I
0: <laughs> story of my life. Okay. Yeah. So we'll switch we'll we'll switch back and forth. Um okay. that's I really see what cool. You've got. Yes. So my and I actually will get into a subspecies with my second animal. Oh good. Cuz that does have to do with that. But my first animal is um mysterious. It is one of the more famous realistic cryptids out there. It's called the mm-hmm. thylacine, also known as the Ooh. Tasmanian tiger. I okay, love this. Okay, so so i basically have a script here so um the thylacin also known as the tasmanian tiger was a medium-sized carnivorous creature though not necessarily aggressive the size of a medium-sized dog and it kind of resembles uh, a tiger from its hindquarters with a canine head basically looks like the hybrid of a jack russell terrier with a tiger cub uh despite its name and appearance it is actually a marsupial with a pouch similar to a kangaroo it was very unique looking animal um So, in fact, when Abel Tasman, who was the uh, white colonist leader who founded Tasmania, he arrived there in the 1600s, he actually mistook this creature for some sort of diminutive tiger species. Um, He was wrong but you know uh so is colonialism but that's a whole nother story anyways so as the name might suggest the tasmanian tiger lived almost exclusively on the australian territory of tasmania today it's a state but evidence suggests that it did live in southern australia at one time about like two thousand years or so there are actual aboriginal rock paintings on the creature so it was around for a while enough for you know um civilizations to kind of track it and do pictures of it uh, it was mostly a shy nocturnal creature that came out at night and lived among eucalyptus growth and its tiger stripe pattern might have been used for uh, camoufl- camouflage among the forest um, and it's worth noting that a lot of t- animals do actually have tiger stripe patterns that aren't tigers uh, the okapi is one of them which was also encrypted. Um let's see so um...
1: and the okapi is related to the giraffe
0: yes it doesn't oh look like so... a giraffe
1: yeah those are so
0: or... cool yeah that's um it's in- interesting stuff <laughs> um so um the tiger the tasmanian tiger or the thylacin was basically destroyed you know, on the australian mainland um uh, because of being hunted as well as dingoes were sort of an invasive species that kind of came down uh on- along the continent and might have driven out their ter- from the territory um So this is basically all before the British arrived. Uh, When they did, they saw the Tasmanian uh, tiger and um, the Tasmanian devil um, as uh, pest species, so they hunted them. Um, uh, There's also a theory that what might have killed them off on the Australian mainland was um, about 4,000 years ago, there was a very distinct El Nino weather pattern in the area, and that might have driven them out of their feeding grounds. Um, but anyways, the, on Tasmania, where they did mostly thrive for a while, or I guess where the last vestige of them was, uh, they were, you know, driven out because of, um, hunters who were trying to keep them off the land. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as we know, Australia is a young country and about like a hundred, 200 years ago, they were sort of trying to kind of tame the land and start, Farms and like kind of agricultural communities, and they had to contend with a lot of nature. Definitely look up something called the Emu Wars. Um, that's oh, yeah. kind of another story, <laughs> but it's similar. That you know, there's always been kind of this like uh, conflict between nature and man. Um, the last known living thylacine was captured in 1933, and it was sent to the Hobart Zoo, where it lived for three years. However, it was not taken care of very well, and on one night, it was locked out of its sleeping quarters. The weather during that week had been very extreme, and it was very hot during the daytime, and the temperature dropped drastically at night. The last, this last thylacine was na- uh, allegedly named Benjamin, but photo analysis of Benjamin turns out that. Um, he may have been a she, but then again, that's not for us to decide. Um, the thylacin um, known as Benjamin died on the 7th of September, 1936. There's a famous black and white f- footage out there of Benjamin in captivity. It's also one of the only um, pieces of footage in existence of the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacin um, in its habit. well, a habitat, not its natural habitat. There's nothing that exists of that. Uh, but this footage has actually been really helpful, it turns out, when it comes to identifying sightings of the thylacin in the wild. Um, that is to say, thylacine thylacin that might still uh, exist. Um, before we go to that chapter, though, the closest relatives to the thylacin are the Tasmanian devil or the numbat um side note but going to australia is like literally going to the world of pokemon there are animals there that (laughs) i that i saw that i never even knew existed before and so many variations um if anyone ends up going to weird they're so weird and if anybody goes (laughs) to alice springs which is in the center uh i highly recommend going to the desert park there it's kind of like a zoo um and you can, can see some of these cute critters in like um captivity a lot of them are rare and are part of breeding programs which is really cool um so i've seen some like things that are on the the extinction list like in the wild which is really cool it's kind of like being on another planet anyways so yes i highly recommend it i am a big fan of that country anyways um the uh tasmanian tiger has despite its you know death date been seen in the wild and as it turns out fairly often the uh Australian Rare Fauna Research Association reports having uh, about 3800 sightings on file from mainland Australia since 1936 um and then uh there's been other sightings as well on Tasmania there's a lot of people out there who are actively looking to prove the existence of this animal uh in more scientific ways than Bigfoot hunters um <laughs> Some sightings have gen- so a lot of this is from Wikipedia, so my apologies. We're gonna power through it. Some sightings have generated large amounts of publicity. In 1973, um, uh, Gary a, a couple, Gary and Liz Doyle, shot 10 seconds of eight uh, eight millimeter film showing an identified animal running across uh, a South Australian road. <sighs> Attempts to positively identify the creature as a thylacin were unfortunately impossible because of the poor quality of the film. Uh, then in 1982, a researcher with the Tasmania Parks and Wildlife Service uh, observed that he, what he believed to be a thylacin for three minutes during the night, a site near Arthur River, which is in northwestern Tasmania. Uh, this sighting actually led to an extensive year-long government-funded search uh in 1985 an aboriginal tracker named kevin cameron produced five photographs which is always really a big deal when you get photo evidence which appears to show a digging thylacin which he also says they took in western australia which again this is the part of which is, it's interesting it's just this is the part of the country where uh, they basically were all gone before um europeans got there so it's interesting that people who are like australians or descendants um are seeing them there at all in the mainland um uh let's see as you know in 2005 there was a german tourist named klaus emmerichs who uh claimed to have taken a digital photograph of a thylacin which he saw near lake st clair national park Uh, unfortunately i don't know where that is i'm not sure if it's on the mainland (laughs) or not um
1: but but you pronounced it right so yeah it turned, it turned well a lot better than me
0: <laughs> well when you go there you just suddenly know how to pronounce things it's crazy oh, it's um magical. yes it is a magical place in 2008 a group of thylacins so like a whole pack was reportedly captured on video in the state of victoria and i do know where that is because i was there uh that's cool. the state that has Mel- melbourne is like the main city there um this footage unfortunately remains unconfirmed but again, like, uh, this is all, this is all like a big hella blue. In fact, the most recent thing, which I will go into a little bit more detail, um, has actually is leading towards like an actual survey, which is a big deal, because that means there's enough people out there in positions of authority who do believe there's credible evidence. So here's the whopper. There has been two major thylacine sightings in this year, Our Lord 2017, I know whatever it is, 2017, of a thylacin that are really, really um there's well there's something. So one is a YouTube video from July that was captured by a um, well at least what his name is on the YouTube channel. His name is Paul G Day, which again this was his YouTube handle. So I'm thinking it's supposed to be Paul Gooday, or else this man was just <laughs> blessed with the most Australian name ever, which is entirely possible. Um, This one's a bit inconclusive. There, I read the YouTube comments because this is how I research things. Um, and a media group, or at least someone with a video background who responded, uh, like one of the t- most top voted clips, sorry, comments, said that they did some av- research on this clip of the thylacin running across the sunset. I've seen it. It's pretty weird looking. Um, they said that they don't believe it's a thylacin. They did some analysis on the footage.
1: What do you
0: think it is? Yeah, that's the thing. So they had done some analysis on the footage. They ran it through some filters. And they said it could actually be a dog wearing a collar. They were able to identify the collar from the footage. I looked at it. I (laughs) don't have an extensive video analysis, CSI-esque enhanced background. So I didn't see a collar. Um... It does look strange how it's maybe it was a dog it's...
1: wearing a thylacine suit.
0: Yes. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. They're really throwing us off the trail. Um, <laughs> entirely possible. Or uh, a thylacine just messing...
1: wearing a dog suit.
0: Whoa. That even harder. Yeah. Um. We are through the looking glass, Kate. Um. That's crazy. I love this conspiracy theory. We should just put it out there and see who who bites. Yeah. that's pro- uh, um,
1: probably what happened.
0: Right. Um. It. It could be a dog that was just injured. No, it's okay. It could be a dog that was just in. That was just injured. Um. And like just like the gait of it, but just like the way it walks when you do see it, it is unusual. So that happened. Um. But what's even more impressive is that there was another sighting on video this year, and this is currently being investigated. So specifically where it's been taken place, like where the footage was shot is not disclosed. It's not disclosed because they're actually doing a survey there and they don't want anyone to like mess with it. But basically secret. a man named Greg yep, the secret. A man named Greg Booth was who is a um a wood carter from I'm ooh, here we go. Here's a challenge. I believe Uh-oh. it's pronounced ouse It's O U S E. Maybe it's it's probably Oss. Um oh. it's in the Central Highlands I they don't ca- have
1: to say it. <laughs> yeah.
0: you're it's it's, no worries um the image was taken by booth and his 80 year old father joe who was a former forestry worker in bushland more than 30 miles from a former forestry outpost in medina uh, or medina the men gave the footage to um a man named adrian richo richardson (laughs) that is the most australian (laughs) name ever who or bruce um who has been researching thylacins for 26 years so he's legit. Um, and they they basically came to this conclusion. Um, it's either that the animal is a large spotted tailed quoll, which are super adorable. And I highly advocate looking that <laughs> up. Or, or it's actually a thylacin. Hockham's um, razor for you. So um, the men awesome. who took the right. The men who took the footage have passed copies of the film to the Tasmanian government for further assessment as they hunt for more proof. It is believed now that there is a one in three chance that this is actually a credible sighting, which in my opinion would make it one of the most important animal-related discoveries of the century so far. Um, oh, yeah. What lends credence to this... Oh, absolutely. What lends credence to this is that it was in deep, like, deep bush. So it's, like, really, like, in, like, um, just the thick of the forest uh so like that that is a pretty good area to find something that's so reclusive and so rare um uh one fun fact about the thylacin is that in 1983 the american media mogul ted turner offered a $100,000 reward for proof of the continued existence of the thylacin thank you wikipedia for that fun fact <laughs> um and so here's my conclusions and then i'm gonna throw it back to you uh, I am okay. what is in philosophical inquiry known as a pragmatist, which is basically like um, an optimistic skeptic. Uh, in pragmatism, uh, all roads that could theoretically lead to the truth are considered valid, and you know basically innocent until proven guilty. So you don't immediately rule anything out until you've analyzed and drawn your conclusions. So in cases like this, where there is no stone-cold conclusive evidence, you sort of have to pull from everything that's being presented to you, right? And to me, there's a huge amount of footage and photography of these creatures out there that could be credible. And I think the volume alone says something. So do I know for sure that the thylacin still exists? No. But I do think that there is a strong chance that it might. And um, more so than other cryptids that we're looking for out there. So I would say there's a good chance that in the next couple years or so, we will probably conclusively find out whether this thing is still out there or not. And uh, yeah, uh, I open that to comments and then we can segue into your next thing. But did you have anything you wanted to say about our friend, uh, the uh, Tasmanian tiger slash Oh yeah,
1: that's so exciting to think about because there really is a lot of places in New Zealand and Australia where people just don't go or if they don't go easily. So it's very possible that they're just sort of living their lives out there. And one day somebody will actually get some really clear footage and say, look, this is not a dog. This is not a fox. This is what we have. And Mr. Turner, give me the money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe you'll be the one, and uh, you should totally go to Australia if you find yourself the opportunity. It's so cool. But um, what's your next animal friend that may be coming back
1: Ah, or not? I have another good one the ivory billed woodpecker. Ooh, a bird. Yeah, a bird. I love birds. Even people who are not (laughs) into birding, they know about this one because this was a big deal. So let's see. First of all, Let me tell you a little bit about the bird because a lot of times people think, if you're not a birder, people sometimes will look out and they know what a woodpecker looks like. So they see an enormous woodpecker and they think that they've seen this rare ivory-billed woodpecker, but actually what they're seeing is a pileated woodpecker, which is not rare and is not even as big as the ivory-billed, but superficially they look alike. So it's not a pileated. If you've seen a big bird on your feeder or a suet feeder or just flopping around, um, you've probably not seen an ivory-billed. You've seen a pileated, but you kind of have an idea of what the ivory-billed looked like. Um, the ivory-billed woodpecker used to be really common, and it used to be really common throughout the Southeast. Um United States also was in Cuba, um, but it was getting rare even by the time oh, say the passenger pigeon was killed off. Because, mm. yeah, it needs May a whole lot of woodland to survive. And, you know, when you chop down the trees to make a town and another farm and another farm and another town, you know, the the woodpeckers just are not going to survive. But there are still plenty of long or large tracts of land that they might live in. Um, but... They got quieter and quieter, and sometimes people would actually kill them on purpose because they thought they were killing trees. It was just really bad. People don't understand that once you kill enough of an animal, even if you still see them around, they're not going to survive ultimately, um, unless you're really careful and they're really lucky. But anyway, so the, the woodpecker, the ivory billed woodpecker, was considered extinct by the 1920s. Um, but then a couple popped up in Florida, and somebody thought, "Oh my gosh, that's that rare woodpecker," and they shot them because they wanted the bodies to mount in a museum. And that's not. Oh how my, you do it.
0: God. that is the most yeah. frustrating thing I've yeah. ever heard.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, but then again, in 1935, some sightings were seen in what was called the Singer Tract in Louisiana. So the Singer Sewing Machine Company man, Mr. Singer, whose first name I did not write down, but he actually bought this huge tract of land because he wanted a place where he could get some high quality wood for his sewing machines, which is pretty cool. So, but he designated it sort of a restricted area. He didn't want people to hunt on it. He didn't want people taking his wood. And of course the locals did anyway, because they'd lived there for so long, you know, they, they don't care about Mr. Singer. Um, but you know, eventually, you know, he sold off part of it and then he sold off some of the timber rides. It, it was very complicated and kind of weird, but, but the birds were actually there. And in 1935, uh, Cornell university, after having some sightings, uh, they sent a team down and they, they actually found some of these ivory bell woodpeckers and they were big birds. They were like two feet long from the bill to the tail and had like a three foot wingspan. So this was a pretty substantial sized bird. Um, so they found and filmed them. They recorded their sounds and their calls and, they even left a guy there for two years. He was a graduate student at Cornell, and he said, okay, I'm just going to stay here, and I'm going to study these birds, and he did, and he actually, I was, I'm at my aunt's house to do this, and I was talking to her about this, the birds, the woodpeckers, beforehand, and she said, oh, that's Dr. Tanner. I used to know his wife. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'm like, What? You what? <laughs> what? So yeah, so apparently the guy was from around here. I'm I'm from East Tennessee. So he actually taught at University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And that's where oh, wow. my yeah, my uncle taught there for fifty, well, forty years, something like that. Um, not he wasn't a bird doctorate guy he was a bassoon player but but my my uncle and so they have ties to University of Tennessee and they know all these people so I thought that was kind of neat but anyway so Dr. Tanner he stayed there for a couple years he had all these pictures and audio and video and then in 1943 well, actually, this happened a little bit earlier in, in the late 30s. Everybody was saying, you know, we really need to make this area with these rare birds protected. So let's make it a state park. And everybody got on board. I mean, everybody got on board. They had the money to buy the tract from this uh, place called Chicago Mill and Lumber Company, which is who owned it now. Because uh, mm-hmm. in, sometime in the 30s, the... Singer guy sold it. Um, But so they had all the money they had. Everybody was saying, yeah, no problem. Go ahead and make this. And the Chicago Mill and Lumber Company, and I hate them, hate them, hate them. They said, no, we don't want your money. And they clear cut the entire place. And the Mm. last birds were gone by 1944. So that was the last of the ivory-billed woodpecker, so we thought. But then in 2004... There was a kayaker in Arkansas at a wildlife refuge, and he saw this really big woodpecker, and he, gets, he posted pictures of it on, like, Facebook or something, whatever they had in 2004. I don't know. And <laughs> I'm somebody, pretty sure they had yeah, Facebook in 2004. Yeah. Or, no, My, MySpace. <laughs> it's probably on yeah, his MySpace. MySpace. Yeah. Uh, maybe Usenet. I don't know. No, that was too far back. <sighs> the but anyway, was 90s. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember it well. It was really awesome. But then there was nothing but spam. Anyway, so nineteen or two thousand four, the kayaker put his pictures of this bird online, and somebody from Cornell University is like, wait a minute, we know what that is. So Cornell University and the Nature Conservancy sent a team out to the area and they started seeing the bird and and they think it was just one individual that was actually spotted like a dozen times they got some video they got some audio so what cornell and nature conservancy did and i think this is really cool is they very quietly started to buy up the land around the refuge to add it to the refuge so there was even more land just in case there was a breeding population here and um but then eventually the secret got out because in 2005 oh, yeah well you know they have to publish eventually so in the the journal science in 2005 they published their findings and everybody went ballistic i mean birders generally are pretty calm people because i do like bird watching i enjoy it a lot i'm not very good at it but i like getting out there and looking at the birds but all the birders I've talked to, they're so super nice, and they're just interested in the birds. Well, this showed their darker side because they <laughs> the really— The darker side of birdwatchers. The waters. darker side of birding. <laughs> these people were at each other's throats. And it, it really was very ugly because they started to—one group said that was just a polliated woodpecker— Um, Because they do look similar and another group said, no, this is the ivory build and they started to accuse each other of making up results or denying results that were clear and you know, it just got real ugly, but But anyway, so we do have the video and I've seen it and it Doesn't even look like a bird to me. It's just like a smudge of white. It's really grainy It's really unclear, but they also have audio And when I was originally researching this um, for one of my earlier episodes, and it's really terrible because I had to listen to it again because I'd lost my notes, and I sound horrible on it. It's even worse than I probably do now. But um, so, yeah, but anyway. You're you're fine, Kate. Okay, thank you. Believe in I appreciate yourself. Appreciate it. I don't believe you, but that's nice of you to say. So, but when I did the research for this originally, uh, the first thing I looked at was the video, and I thought, oh come on, you can't even tell me that. That might co- that could be anything. It could be a chickadee. Um, it certainly is not conclusive either way. But then I listened to the audio, and the interesting thing is that there's a comparison out there where you can listen to the audio taken in the nineteen thirties and compare it to the audio taken in two thousand four and oh, wow. it sounds identical. It sounds identical. So this so is So wait a
0: minute. I don't mean to interrupt but like the no, just no, like no, just no, you're fine. to clarify the cadence of the, the actual pecking for a lack yeah. of a better word. That it, that is specific to species as well.
1: Yeah, and this one is interesting because, like, I I know I keep talking about the pileated woodpecker. They're not closely related to the ivory build. I mean, they're not closely related at all. The only reason they look similar is because they sort of fit into a very similar habitat, and birds tend to look alike if they live in the same habitat and eat the same things and, you know, the same environmental pressures. Uh, but they're not very closely related, and they don't sound anything alike because I, I see polliateds all the time and I hear them. So this ivory bill wook wukpe- wuk- Woodpecker. I I I know. Oh no, she's turning into a bird.
0: She's turning into a bird.
1: Oh no, I'm going to fly away. Uh, The ivory billed woodpecker sounds nothing like any woodpecker I've ever heard. It has a very nasal voice, but it's also very loud. Um, And some people, even listening to the recording, I've heard some people say, well, that could be a blue jay, or that could be, uh, oh gosh. Anything that has a nasal voice, and blue jays do, and blue jays make a lot of different noises. But I think this was an ivory-billed woodpecker. In my mind, there is absolutely no doubt that that was audio of this bird. So, unfortunately, uh, there were no further sightings by 2010. So the researchers, they called the searches off. But if it was there just, what, 12 15 i can't add in my head 2004 2005 to 2017 it's not that long and these are really long-lived birds too they could live like 25 or 30 years then all you need is a small population that are safe and sound and nobody's gonna shoot them or poison them and they'll just have a whole lot of babies and then we'll have more of them so that's what i'm really hoping has happened so let's keep looking
0: absolutely um yeah. yeah so the fact that there could be a chance is really is really cool. Uh mm-hmm. by the way, um Isaac Singer, Isaac Merrick Singer was the guy who created the Singer Corporation, oh, which thank is one you. of the which is one of the oldest still like in business organiz- like American companies that's like still actively producing things cuz I guess like sewing machines awesome. is kind of one of those things. Um, and yeah. they're based in Laverne, Tennessee, near Nashville, which I don't know if oh, that's wow. close to you or not. Uh, I, I don't
1: know. no, that's middle Tennessee. I live in East Tennessee, but hey, Tennessee, shout out to yes. Tennesseans. Yeah, yes. We're all over uh, the Ivory Bill Woodpeckers.
0: I, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. And I really hope they come back. Um, yeah. just cause like one of the reasons why I, I, I think I do this podcast is because I love the idea of. Um, I am an idealist and an optimist, so I like the idea mm-hmm. of being able to find something again because there's like a little bit of hope attached to it. And in this oh, episode yeah. in particular, which is really stretching the whole lost treasure <laughs> um, uh, boundary. I don't know because yeah, those are treasures,
1: man. Yeah, those elephants were given by kings and sultans. That's a treasure.
0: That is a treasure. So yeah, yeah it's it's a wildlife treasure. I feel like I should. Yeah. I might attach some sort of um, wildlife fund or donation thing at the end of this. I might just co-opt this and turn it into, I don't know. I'll have to do some research, um, Mm -hmm. but I will will figure that out later before I release it. Um, Anyways, that's really cool. Um, I'm going to go into my last animal, which is also a subspecies. And this is the Japanese wolf. Also oh, known as...
1: Yeah, when you mentioned you were going to do this, I, I don't know anything about this animal, so I am listening hard.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, so it's the Japanese wolf, also known as the Honshu wolf, and Honshu is one of the big islands in Japan. Um, I think it's the main one, or is that Kyushu? Oh, no. Oh, no. We're <laughs> going. To... That's why we have the internet. Honshu, All I can... no. All
1: I know is that Hokkaido is one of them, but I don't know. The
0: Hoka... Yes. And there is um, okay. yeah, Honshu is the most. It's the. It's basically the main body of Japan, the largest island. And the Hokkaido wolf is different, but it's, like very oh, similar. Okay. So I kind of I've kind of grouped them together. Um, but the uh, Japanese wolf, uh, also known as Canis lupus hodophilax, is an extinct subspecies of the gray wolf that was once endemic to the islands of Honshu, Shikoku, Kyushu, and uh, the Japanese archipelago as that you love that name so i'm just gonna throw that in there what or our pelago how did you say it i liked it i don't Whatever. know
1: i i'm not afraid to say it again
0: archipelago okay. yes I well you you said something you said something else that but i liked it it's
1: not yes it's
0: <laughs> yeah anyways it's
1: uh, archipelago
0: Yes, we'll take that one. It's um, the Latin name uh, de- derives from the Greek word for path, which is hodo, and phylax, which is a guardian, so guardian of the paths. Um, and this is in reference to Japanese folklore, which portrays the wolves as protectors of travelers. And that's going to come into play later because. I know for like a Western mindset, I was like, "That does not seem like wolves at all." Um, it was one of two subspecies that were once found in the Japanese, I'm damn it, archipelago. The other being the Hokkaido wolf. Because now I'm going to start. Sorry, I <laughs>
1: ruined that word for everyone.
0: Well, every time I, I hear it, I will think of you, Kate. Um, so, so yeah, um, it was a small wolf, but not the world's smallest wolf. That distinction goes to the uh, Arab wolf, which um, measures on an average of 200.8 millimeters, which is smaller than most wolves. Uh, long pronounced uh, as I scroll down. Um <laughs> Oh, an analysis, this is just a cool fact, an analysis of their mitochondrial DNA of a ton of dogs released worldwide shows that Japanese wolf mitochondrial DNA could be found in two entirely different dogs if you trace it all the way back. One one is the Shiba Inu, which makes sense because they are an ancient dog breed from the island of Japan. Um, Inu just means dog, so the Shiba um, and the other one is Wait, the Siberian are, are husky. They,
1: are they the dogs?
0: They are the dogs. So wow. They yes, they are so wow. Am I I'm, one I'm of my
1: so with it?
0: Yes. One of my best friends in New York, shout out to Billy, has a has a Sheba that I really love named Denver, They're but awesome. whatever. That's neither here nor there. Um, the Japanese wolf was first catalogued and described by the Dutch zoologist. Kunrad Jakob Tenmink in eighteen thirty nine. Um and if you remember or do not know this, the Dutch were actually one of the first few uh foreign people to be welcomed in, into Japanese ports. And debatably they had a better relationship with the Japanese than any other Westerners at that time, mostly because they weren't jerks. Um, <laughs> And they noted, and this guy noted that the Japanese wolf was be very small. So it was a chibi wolf because everything in Japan is cute. Um, so Japanese, them. I do too, but also they're extinct. So mm. no luck. Yeah. Uh, Japanese, or are they? Japanese traditional uh-huh. belief has aha uh-huh, has a more positive take on wolves than many Western cultures in comparison. And one of the reasons is because the Japanese wolf is not big and scary and can kill you like its western counterpart well probably could if it wanted to um but it's it's pretty small and not likely to attack uh in fact they were largely seen as signs of good luck depending on the situation so we're going to get into a little bit of folklore here before we get back on course in uh the shinto belief system which is the um native belief system of japan uh the okami is which is wolf is regarded as a messenger of the kami spirits and also offers protection against crop raiders, such as the wild boar and deer wild animals were often associated with the mountain kami or spirit or goddess whose name was Yama no kami, which just basically means spirit of the mountains. I got, there are a lot of earth spirits in Japanese lore and in Shinto, i kind of take her to be sort of like one of the head ones. She's kind of like mother earth uh she's the best but one. i guess more specific yes the best one but i think well that's also inari but i'm not gonna split hairs she's i guess this one is more <laughs> of like a mountain goddess but anyways the mountains of japan are still seen today as a very dangerous deadly place and they were associated with the wolf which was believed to be the protector and guardian of the mountains um many mountain villages so, such as Okamiwa, which is wolf rock and okami-taira which is wolf plateau sorry that was really bad pronunciation <laughs> are named after the wolf and this could also be due to sightings at the location um let's see there are tons of wolf shrines all over Honshu. the most famous national shrine is located is in um is located at uh mitsumine in uh, chichibu Saitama Prefecture, which actually comes into the story later, I believe, and there's also tons of other shrines. Yeah, uh, the, the, the in Japanese belief, the wolf was believed to escort travelers through the forest at night if they were lost, and they would escort them until they arrived home, making sure no harm would come to them. And offerings were often made specifically for this escort. Uh, escort. Escort. Is it escort? <laughs> yes. I'm not sure. That name sounded weird. Me saying it out loud. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I Escort. Archipelago. (laughs) Uh, Another belief was that wolves raised the infant who would later become the clan leader Fujiwara no Hidehira. Another belief is that uh, feeding an infant a wolf's milk would raise them to be strong. I don't advocate doing that. Uh, There's just a tons of legends. I won't go into all of them. There's like wolves foretelling doom, wolves warning people of things with their howls uh people would carry like wolf fangs as ornaments basically all this is great until the 1800s when i mentioned that japan was opening up to the west because uh in 1868 basically the whole system of government which was feudalistic came to an end and this is typically it's not typically it is referred to as the meiji era or the meiji restoration in japanese history um This is when Japan pulls a Madonna and reinvents itself. (laughs) Uh, They're curious about Westerners. It's a great time to get up and dance. So uh, an American from Ohio by the name of Edward Dunn is recruited by the Japanese to teach ranching techniques to Hokkaido farmers. And this is great at first because it's a really cool, positive cultural exchange, except for one thing. In the Americas, where we live, wolves are giant and terrifying and frequently kill livestock. And sometimes people, not so much anymore, but they can if they want to. And they're regarded as pests by farmers to the point where many conservationists are now in direct conflict with the agriculturalists over protecting wild wolves because this is America and everything is now on fire Um, but this this whole stigma was transferred to the Japanese system because westerners didn't realize that the species were smaller and not so so bad so they began to hunt them and then in addition to that, rabies happened and spread across the population, which did make the wolves aggressive, which did make them attack more than just like livestock. It made them attack humans. And then, um, that's when they really started to get hunted down. So these two things, the rabies and the hunting basically drove the wolf to extinction at the start of the 1900s. The last specimens were recorded at Higashi Yoshino village in Nara prefecture in 1905. Um, Uh, but since then people have seen it (laughs) that's the point of this episode (laughs) um it was claimed in 1977 uh in 2000 it was also there was a claim that was later dismissed as a hoax Uh, a lot of japanese zoologists think that people see uh dogs and misidentify them um there's also the hokkaido wolf or the ezo wolf which is somewhat similar and people still see that somewhere as well it's i didn't I, I didn't want to go too off course and get into another subspecies, but that's another thing. Anyways, drawing to a conclusion on this saga, uh, sightings. The, a lot of these sightings were kind of just um, sporadic. And not very conclusive until a man named Hiroshi Yagi, who is uh, in his 60s now. And he's kind of an authority on looking for the Honshu wolf. And this started in his late teens when he would sometimes hear howls. The howls of wolves along the periphery of his home at night. And he knew they couldn't be belong to dogs because these howls were so distinct. So he's looked for it... Um, forever he's gone into the mountains to look for sightings anytime a sighting pops up he will go to that place and look for it uh, one of these places was that uh, was Saitama Prefecture which I mentioned before specifically the uh, Okuchichibu Mountains uh, for those who don't know prefectures are basically the equivalent to states in america or australia and this mountain range which i will not pronounce again uh, <laughs> has a lot of reports of japanese wolves to the point that in 1998 there was a huge wave of sightings in the area as well as uh, attacks on chicken coops uh, people would just see them running through their yards they would hear them howling at night it was enough that it caused a lot of media attention But here's the kicker, and here is why I definitely included this animal. In October of 1996, Mr. Yagi was in this area of the country when he himself did come upon a canine creature that he trapped and followed along a stretch of scenic road, like in the forest. The animal emerged from the brush, and he was able to note its movement, its size, etc., before it went back into the forest again. Now, this account itself would be cool enough, but again just a story only it's not just a story because mr yagi had his camera on him at oh, the time yeah. and he was able to take photos and these aren't just like those blurry bigfoot lochness monster photos either or like the the woodpecker you mentioned <laughs> um these are like up close photos this creature is front and center and it does not look like a normal dog When you compare it with the photos of other Japanese wolves, it actually looks dead on. And you can, if you just Google Honshu wolf photos, you will see, like, it's, it's not just like a little guy in the forest. It's right up front. And he's just chilling and walking along. Yeah so my conclusion on this is and like that's basically it The, the the hunt continues but uh my conclusion is that i think the tasmanian tiger likely still exists and i think there is a strong evidence for the japanese wolf because of these photos but if i had to play devil's advocate on myself it could be a wild dog that's just mixed bread but you know evidence so that's it for that. Um, I thought we could just take – I know we're kind of going into an hour, but that's fine because this is, you know, special episode. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about dinosaurs and mammoths and things that could still sure. – that they say – <laughs> the, this is the silly part. Can you talk to me about – because I'm going to talk about mammoths and a little bit of megalodons because there is some – apocryphal oh, yeah. literature out there but do you cuz i i remember one of the first episodes i listened to from strange animals was about the mm-hmm. mokolo mbembe which oh yeah we probably doesn't exist cuz brontosauruses don't yeah. don't live in like that the swamps
1: that kind of iffy <laughs>
0: But yeah, talk to me a little bit about these dinosaurs. You can just make this off the cuff if you don't have any okay. notes, because it's well, just the fun part.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Generally, there's a lake in, I don't remember where, somewhere in the middle of Africa, which is a really big continent. So it could be anywhere. I don't remember. I think it's but, the
0: Congo. Yeah, I think if somewhere it's the around yeah. in that
1: area. And it, it's apparently it's, it's kind of built up now. But at the time, and this was like, oh the big colonial explorer era where they go in with their pith helmets and look at stuff and, you know, decide what they were going to take. Um, th- this is the era that these stories originated from with the big white hunters. So they would go in and they would swap tall tales. And sometimes the t- stories turned out to be true. But in this case, I think they probably weren't. Um, apparently this this, oh, brontosaurus-like creature lives in the swampy areas around this lake. And people, I mean, it has really turned into a big tourist attraction. People take their expeditions out looking for it. So, you know, I don't think it's the case, but hey, you know, if there's going to be brontosauruses somewhere, I am all for it. Go look for them. Bring one back. I want a pet.
0: <laughs> Me too. I want a Bront. Yeah. Paprosaurus. Uh, yeah, like do they. You know. Yeah. Wow. Flintstones reference. Yeah. Um, you got it. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's also, I guess, been dinosaurs like that apparently went extinct later than we thought they would in Australia to the point that wow. we have like cave paintings of them existing alongside humans. But Australia that again is also is such very inconclusive.
1: Interesting country. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. It is. It mm-hmm. is. And I want to go back. But yeah. uh the th- the thing about that is that Australia did host megafauna, like giant kangaroos and things oh, like yeah. that. Um uh, so it's possible that could have just been a misidentification of another creature that might have lived there. Uh but megafauna, the thing about Big animals is that they're in the middle of You know they're not very good At hiding because they're so large no. so They die out really yeah. quickly um, On, on the other hand
1: Humans are megafauna we are Considered part of the megafauna Of the Pleistocene oh, right. and later Yeah so oh, know, wow. We're doing okay Look well, at us
0: <laughs> Yeah well, <laughs> Debatable we, Yeah uh, <laughs> Um so dinosaurs are a thing, but what's possibly more in the realm of the fantastic? And Kate, okay, I'm sorry, that's my radiator that you're probably oh. hearing that large thumping noise that's going on no, right now. No, that's um, fine. All these I, old apartment. My,
1: my aunt's grandkids are gonna burst into this room any minute now. I can tell. Okay,
0: well <laughs> we'll we'll wrap it up. Um, no, that's but, okay. I just,
1: uh, if if they do, your radiator is not a problem. <laughs>
0: yeah it's very steampunk this like setup we have in the the old apartments here but mammoths mammoths there's a lot of legends and sightings of those well into the modern era um Mm. by the indigenous peoples of alaska and siberia and a lot of these are secondhand accounts but there was one of uh, people seeing them in like the very very remote mountains of alaska And, like, people hunting them and, like, tribes of Inuits up there hunting them. There are some tales of uh, Native Americans, I believe Plains Indians, coming across mastodons and, like, fighting and hunting them. And also being kind of like, this is, like, a really weird thing that we don't usually encounter. So, like, we don't know what to tell you, white people. Um, (laughs) But uh, there... This, this kind of, yeah. like, creepy, like, radiator rhythm is very prehistoric. So we're just going to, like, have it be the background. Um, and then, it's, uh, it's yeah, people... Like, it's my dinosaur
1: walking around.
0: Yeah, it's my dinosaur. Um, and, yeah, Siberia, they, like, still... They've come across, like, preserved remains of mammoth, which oh, are yeah. very well preserved, which is really interesting. So there yeah. are some people out there, like, fringe beliefs, who think that mammoth still exist in Siberia... And again, there's really legends. There's not anything as conclusive as like these the photo evidence we have for like the Tasmanian tiger and the ivory billed yeah. woodpecker and um, the well. The, the interesting wolf. thing
1: about mammoths is that they actually we know for sure that there was at least one population still alive 4,500 years ago, which is like nothing. That's like no time at all geologically. So maybe. Wow. Yeah. They they were on one remaining island, very remote island near Russia. And um, they think that what happened was that the only freshwater source actually dried up and they all died. And they were oh. really inbred because it was not a big island. But they lived for a long time like that, for thousands of years. So. Oh, yeah. yeah Siberia and I bet the... is a big place.
0: You never know. Alaska. Uh, I bet that. They're in Alaska. I bet the genetic inbreeding probably also had something to do with yeah. them dying out. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it was just a matter
1: of time. Because there were only well, like a know. few hundred on the island at any given time.
0: Do you think that they might still be out there, or is that less likely? Well,
1: I don't know. I would really like them to be there, but they're such big animals that you would think, I mean... Now that we have Google Earth and can, like, basically zoom in on my own backyard and see what's going on, you would think there are probably people who just kind of get on there and look around for mammoths. But maybe, maybe they're out there. I hope so. I don't know. I don't think it's a really good chance, but it might be.
0: Well, I know they've talked about, like, pulling a Jurassic Park and, like, splicing the mammoth DNA with, Uh, like, a baby elephant and that'll be interesting to see if that pans out because i think that's still being planned i think that's Um, gonna take a
1: while
0: oh yeah um (laughs) something i hope doesn't exist uh and this will be my last thing that i'll close on is the megalodon Ah. which is basically like a shark the size of a whale and is terrifying and (laughs) there yes it's it's scary and there are people out there who have said that they've seen like their fishing nets get bitten in two by giant sharks but most people think that they're just great whites like very big great white sharks Mm -hmm. so it's unlikely that's something that prehistoric still exists out there but the oceans are deep and dark and scary so who knows but uh yeah i guess that's that's kind of it did you did you have anything you wanted to plug anything really
1: i mean everybody can go listen to my podcast but that's the only thing
0: to plug that is an order please go listen subscribe five stars um but yeah so thanks for listening everyone uh i want to let listeners know that this is going to be the last it belongs in a museum episode of our of um our (laughs) mid-season break course i could go back on that later who knows um my goal is to have two holiday specials in december and then we're gonna have a few weeks of wintry quiet and downtime before we complete the last few zep- last few episodes of this season leading into march or april which i'm a little excited about because those are going to be there's sort of been a little bit of an arc that's building over the season in terms of of um a frequent hoarder of treasures and some listeners might pick up on that Uh, it's very relevant I'll just tell you that much (laughs) and this is we're going to go head first into that arc and we're going to kind of land we're going to end my hope is on a more legendary kind of Indiana Jones esque treasure Um, so I also want to announce that official relic stickers are totally going to be a thing at some point my hope is in time for the holidays so stay tuned for future announcements in the meantime You should totally rate and subscribe to Relic as well as Strange Animals Podcast. Our streaming site is relic.blueberry.net and we're on Twitter as as well at Lost Treasure Pod. We also have email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com if you want to send over a correction or a suggestion. And uh, that's pretty much it. So the adventure continues. All right. See ya.
1: Oh, was I supposed to say bye? Bye.
0: (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.